Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Molly Rankin from Always, and this is the LSQ Podcast. It's Jenny Elliskew. Welcome to episode 96. Always have made some of my favorite indie music of the past decade. And although I've interviewed them briefly in the past, I loved getting to go long with Molly Rankin. And we talked about a lot of stuff, about Always' awesome latest album, Blue Rev, about the origins of Archie Marry Me, about how Molly started writing songs as a teenager inspired by learning the chords to her favorite Oasis tunes, about what it was like growing up in a well-known musical family, as her father was among the members of the Rankins, the acclaimed Canadian Celtic folk group, about how her songwriting practice began, and how it has evolved, and more. Let's get into it. Hello? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. How's your level, Mom? Uh, My level's good. Cool. I have a... A tech That's awesome. pro here with me. <laughs> His name is Alec. <laughs> nice job, Alec. Good to see you. <laughs> I need oversight for these things because I can't operate computers or Zoom or anything like that. I fuck it up so often at this point that I just like expect there to be something and uh, kind of feel like I've been watching Columbo this year and I decided, I don't know if you ever watched the 70s detective series Columbo, but I have among the many charming things, he's always fucking something up. You know, he like can't find his thing, can't find his it's pen, relatable. can't find his recorder. <laughs> so I'm like, it's maybe it's just Columbo-ish when I fuck up. <laughs> yeah, you're the Columbo of podcasting. Yes. <laughs> Radio. You said Sweet. it. <laughs> so you're home for a minute. Yeah, it's nice. It's a uh, garden is out of control. Well, are you looking at, the, do you have a view of the garden from where you're <laughs> I'm actually in a bomb shelter right now. No, uh, <laughs> the garden is the back of my apartment, just like most Toronto apartments, I guess, long and narrow. And then there's a backyard, but I, it's like the third year of my raspberry plant. And I didn't know that they become like a full on tree. Wow. And, uh, so it's really taking over. It's incredible though. I don't know anything about plants. I just like put stuff in the ground and see what happens. How are the raspberries? Incredible. Yeah, I've never had one that wasn't like a Driscoll raspberry, you know? Wow. So you were, while you're away, 
you know, that's the one that was one of the first things you noticed when you came home this time, right? Is that the the garden is really growing? Yeah, I guess that's the thing on my mind most of the time when I'm away is just like what's gonna be dead? What's gonna be collapsed? Who left me, you know? Because I feel like my plants are kind of my children. That's depressing, but no, not at all. I talk, I only have one plant, but I do <laughs> I do give it affirmations of love. I mean, I guess they like that, I'm told. Did you want to start the podcast? (laughs) Yeah, we've already started. This is it. It's okay. Sweet (laughs) gardening is the beginning. Is where we begin. But yes, mid mid midstream, Molly Rankin. Thank you. Uh, Welcome to the LSD podcast. It's a year with a lot of touring for always. Blue Rev came out last year, but near the end of last year, so this is when it's really in oh no full bloom. She says punningly. And how's it how's it been feeling? What what sort of phase of tour are you at emotionally? I actually really like having a schedule because I'm not good at monitoring my own productivity and and just building my own full day of activities. So I really like touring. It's not easy, I wouldn't say, but it's kind of like a mini marathon. We just did like a big hunk of Europe and and in the UK, and it was a really smushed trip of just a lot of festivals and stuff really keeping us all on our toes like we didn't really have as much crew as we normally would and every day like the back line is different that's so boring but you know the amps you play through that the festival provides might not work so you're just sort of like okay well how do I approximate my normal guitar sound with this strange amp I've never heard before so lots of that kind of stuff Right, right. And I mean, I was just noticing as I was refreshing my memory about all of the discography that this year is actually the 10th anniversary of Archie Marry Me coming out as as a single, which was in spring of 2013. Oh, wow. I did not know. Does it feel like what how does that how does that description of the time strike you? It is crazy and you're aging me and I resent you for that. Um, I'm trying to look like a teenager for my the duration of my life. So, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, that song it still resonates with us. Like I don't, I don't begrudge it in any way. It's kind of just like a cool little jewel in our history that I still appreciate. In comparison to what you've just described of your tour experience and sort of the level of uh, comfort you have with it now when you look back on 10 years ago when you were first starting to do it. Tell me a little bit about just how things were different then. What was... Well, I was living on Prince Edward Island, and that's uh, an East Coast island in Canada. And I wrote that song. Alec was playing in a couple of other bands and sent the demo to him. And we just started working on our own stuff together after that. Like that song was sort of the catalyst for us leaving and moving to Toronto and starting our own thing. Like I think us working on that distanced him from the things that he was working on when I met him. And yeah, we moved to Toronto and just got service industry jobs. I think I had like three jobs when we were mastering that self-titled album and Yeah, like we were all just hustling in Toronto trying to get any show we could, which was actually pretty hard because we knew really no one there and slowly made some friends and who were playing in other things. And it was very gradual. We were trying to play this festival in New Brunswick called Sappy Fest 
really fun festival and um and i think we needed some type of recording to submit for that so we put the album on a cassette tape so it was out there before we got like the official u.s release and yeah lots changed we have um i don't have a job anymore which is sweet and i'm appreciating that while it lasts but uh, i'm sort of a liability to any person who would hire me to be honest did you have a sense immediately kind of with archie marry me that that was a strong tune yeah i just the reaction even from alec i mean i remember just sort of being like is this already a song but his response like he instantly knew sort of what i was going for and then the scene that I was involved in in Charlottetown, everyone sort of knew that song. They just called it Archie. So we were trying to find the right way to capture that song in a recording process that made it everything that it needed to be and, and didn't need to be at the same time. And that song felt special, like it felt worthy of pursuing something more than playing at a bar on a weekend. Is that a... Is that a feeling is, is that you sort of look for when you're writing now, like relatable to like the Archie feeling, you know, sort of did it help set a template for how you know when to trust your instincts on a song or that album in general, you know? Yeah, I mean, if I pursue a song, it usually gets used like I'm really hard on myself for finding little gems and ideas that I think are worth my time and, and Alex time and we filter each other in that way but I would never bring anything to the table without thinking it had potential and um, yeah I'm sort of my own worst enemy in that way because I'll have all this stuff recorded and years years go by and Alec will pull up an old file and be like this was really cool you know why didn't we do anything with that but um, yeah so I only pick like the catchy ones I guess when do you first remember feeling like a creative impulse as a kid? I mean, I, I feel like I was a huge ham when I was younger. And then you grow old enough to have some self-awareness and you become a stranger kid. But Carrie and I, our keyboardist Carrie, we were next door neighbors and spent all our time together just pretending that we were, you know, demons or mystical creatures in the woods creating our own stories and and we played music together and so we've been doing that like because we just really had no malls or anything I guess that other kids had, like no playgrounds really so we had created our own universe and and still we both do that on our own time and together but musically I I don't remember a time where music wasn't in my life because that's what my father did so and our whole life was centered around it. That music, the music that your father was making, like, what was your feeling about it as a kid? Did you feel a direct connection to it yourself? Or did it seem like kind of that was in its own parental category? I never actually thought about it that way. Like, it was just so present in my life that I never questioned its relevance. It, it was almost just like a religion I grew up around. So, yeah, it's just like this weird arm that's attached to me that I use without knowing and it's always there. But um, yes, I got older, like people in your community know you because of A, B and C, what your parents do, you know, what, whatever. But I was known as, you know, a child of of someone in a famous Celtic band, you know, famous for for in in certain regards. But 
Um, so that was kind of my identity for, for a little while. And then I moved away and did other stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, relating in, in my own way to it, I think about like the music my parents just had on when I was a little kid, which, you know, included stuff like Frank Sinatra, which I really loved in a genuine way that still feels the same as the way I love Zebedo or something, you know, but, but I saw it as, as their music. And there was definitely a time when I started to see my own music differently. I'm like, oh, that's music too. But why do I feel so much more attached to this stuff I chose? So yeah, what was the first stuff that felt like really like this is a music is everywhere. I'm in this musical family. Music's important, but this is a level up from that. I'm I'm obsessed with this. Yeah, I think, well, listening to the radio was such a big deal. You know, that Natalie and Brulia song Torn, that was on all the time. But the first time I sought out music, I was probably finding like the band Oasis. And I've, I've probably, you know, referenced them too much already. But that was the first time I heard like rock music in a sort of a modern way. Of course, I didn't know anything about Storm, like the Stone Roses or any type of shoegaze or even other Britpop. Like when I said I liked Oasis, people would usually just bring up how much better Blur was. <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. Uh, but yeah, and then that becomes like your identity. You know, it's something uh, that belongs to you. So especially when you feel like you're responsible for finding it for yourself. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that first one, whether it's Oasis or Edie Brickell and New Bohemians was my first new band that I liked and thought that I was obsessed with. And then I realized, oh, how obsessed you can be. That's just that's just a tiny shade of how obsessed you'll be with music. But that sets you off sometimes on this kind of rabbit hole of discovery. What did you sort of where did you go from there? What was the, the path you took of music discovery? Um, well, we didn't have a record store. We only had Walmart, which is like a 30 minute drive away. I didn't have a license, but thankfully Napster happened. Napster kids who might be listening, young folks. It yeah. <laughs> was one of the first um, unauthorized file sharing services. And it was a great thing for a short time for music fans. Thank you for contextualizing. Um, I just assume everyone was also obsessed with that. But I mean, good or bad I probably I don't know but um and also they had much music this station which is like Canadian MTV and they play all the new stuff for the if it was big enough they played it but really what I started to do after I started listening to Oasis was I would buy whatever CDs I could find of theirs and learn the songs on guitar and then I started writing using those chords to write my own songs had you taken any lessons or did you just sort of pick up guitar from the household? I could Google, like, I don't know if Google was even a thing, but I could search chords on the internet. Like, I think even Tab Crawler was there by the time that happened, but I didn't have any lessons. I mean, I didn't have any lessons for singing or playing guitar. I did a little bit of fiddle and piano, but I always learned by ear. Like, I would just pretend that I was reading off of a page, which is manipulative and lazy. No, it's just a style of, of yeah. learning. It's just a style of learning. <laughs> and and singing, since you referenced that, like, do, had, had singing started to feel good to you or something you were naturally exploring around the same time as guitar? Or when, when did singing enter the picture? Yeah, I guess they sort of go hand in hand when you're writing songs. But I really, like a lot of artists, never considered myself to be a singer 
it was more just out of necessity. Like I always felt like I was more just making something and less about me singing. But yeah, that's what I was doing. I was singing and playing guitar. And then now I, I actually take ownership of that and try to hone that craft, but like singing, but yeah, I never actually learned how to, how to do it. So did writing, you're trying to figure out and write your own songs happen early on? Cause it sounds like you're saying by the time you're trying to learn Oasis songs, were you already then coming up with your own song ideas in your teens? Yeah, I, I did start just making my own little snippets of things and songs and, and I did like a play in high school and I was supposed to audition and instead of singing like a classic song, I just sang one of my own songs, which I thought would be easier. Yeah, it was really after that I started performing in high school and stuff. And that then I was just sort of on my own path. And I was playing the fiddle a lot in my youth and kind of stopped playing a fiddle as a result of that. I was muted there for a minute, columboing it up again. Oh. Um, <laughs> cool. Do you remember, or what can you tell me about that 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 song that you played, or those early songs in general? Would, would we recognize kind of your your voice, your songwriting voice, in even something that long ago? I think when I first started out, I was just trying to almost imitate other music or singers that I listen to so I had a lot of little affectations I had like twangy little moments I didn't really know what I wanted to sound like or what I even liked so I was just throwing stuff against the wall and even like later when I was probably 20 and and the old demos I would record for always like the way I sung was vastly different than the way I do now mm. so I'm still changing all the time but yeah my earlier songs that I would write which were just like basically teenage songs about things I didn't even understand but I was just writing about stuff that I thought other people wrote about yeah it was very like almost country yeah a little country-ish and what was your kind of songwriting process then and how how has it evolved or, or stayed the same good question I don't really think about it like I guess I, a melody comes into my head or a phrase and everything just sort of evolves from there and in sort of a natural way, but I don't have a formula and I, I never have. It's just, I just follow this little sparkle. Can you feel it? Can you, are you precognitive of it? Can you feel a feeling coming to you when there's an idea? Yeah. And, um, and I'm usually somewhere really inconvenient when it happens, but, you know, I try to run home and, and figure it out in in its most inspired state. And then there's the other way where you just sit at a keyboard and loop things hours on end and try things out. And that can be fruitful, too. But in my in my experience, the most inspiring ideas happen to you. Is it usually a melody that dominates or is there a lyric idea or a phrase? I find sometimes they work hand in hand like. I think of a whole new perspective or like a little catchphrase that I feel is unique and invokes this other persona that I haven't, that felt like fresh to me. Um, and then some miraculously, a melody can just work in tandem with that. If I'm, if I'm lucky, they happen together. As far as performing goes, what were your kind of earliest musical performances like, and how did you kind of grow into your own comfort as a as a front person. I mean, I don't even know if I'm there yet, but 
I always liked really stoic people on stage that didn't do much. And so just grappling with that and being in a semi-rock band is, <laughs> is I'm always trying to uh, push myself out of my comfort zone and just be more of a front person, but it, it's not the most natural thing. And when I first started out, I had huge stage fright and would just forget everything I knew. And I mean, I've been doing it. F I've been on stage since I was so young, like playing the fiddle and step dancing and and all of that. And you would think that it would just be a natural thing. But it's something that I've really worked on over time, just calming down my breathing before we go on. Like a lot of performance stuff is so centered in in breathing. Yeah, same for also just living and coping. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's like when you're talking about something uncomfortable, you don't realize it, but you're like holding your breath. It's so weird how, how breathing is just, it says a lot about what you're going through. When you talk about stoic people who have a kind of stoic presence on stage, what are some examples of, of those artists who you sort of, you know, somewhat emulate their energy? I mean, I love like, we did some shows with the Jesus and Mary chain and Jim Reed was really cool. Like he doesn't flop around. He's just like the center of power on stage. And uh, sometimes he'll walk back to the drum riser and take a sip of water, but that's, that's it, you know? And uh, even like Liam Gallagher, I always thought was cool, like hands behind his back, just doing his thing. It's hard to be that cool. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little more about lyrics. So how much kind of refinement does your lyric writing process undergo, uh, especially at this point when you have, you know, so much experience and more skills? Like how much editing and in, in the whole metamorphosis of exactly, exactly. And just yeah. sort of like, I don't know, I, I think, you know, always lyrics are one of my favorite aspects of the songs. And that's why I always assume that artists um, like that you know, take take a lot of care to kind of refine and edit and look for the perfect word choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who said this, but I heard that someone said this and I thought it was so interesting. They said that the music or the melody is offense and lyrics are defense. So sometimes you can compensate for a song that's not completely there if the lyrics are really compelling though I really tried to make both of those things good but um it we Alec and I really put ourselves through it when we do lyrics I have like two full binders of blue rev lyrics that are just you know full of discarded ideas and editing and you know google docs and you know it's just it that's the hardest part of the puzzle for me is is figuring out what needs to be said and how it, how it should be said and how random it should seem but how to make sense of something, you know, like sometimes you you write a song and you, you can't figure out what it's about until it's finished. Or maybe never. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can you think of any examples of always songs that you're still not sure what they're about? On our most recent album, we have a song called Pomeranian Spinster, which the vocal take of that song was done in a shed with me, Carrie, and Alec just jamming over the pandemic when we were first allowed to play together. And the I'm I'm sure I was like a little bit drunk and the the vocal take is like very rough and kind of unhinged and most of the words are gibberish so then I couldn't do anything that was like that in the studio and I don't even know if we tried to be honest um, because just like redoing it was just impossible which happens a lot you know like demo vocals are hard to beat but uh, then I had to piece together like what the song was about based on all these wacky syllables that I was just throwing out there. And um, so the song is like has a bunch of different themes, which I think are kind of coherent. But uh, that one was like really difficult. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way there's the there's just like a dream where there's an intuitive connection between all of the things. But how are you as the dreamer supposed to really be able to decipher it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then I, there are so many songs in the world that I like that are just nonsense. You know, I also like, I never know what my bloody Valentine are singing about. So I tell myself things like that, like Cocteau Twins, what's she saying? Does it matter? You know? Right. Sometimes there's that uncanny, you know, expression that's just like, you just, is the, you know, is the thing where you're like, fuck, yeah, that's a song. It's a phrase. It, the phrase implies a song just that by its existence or something. Yeah. Like, um, not all songs can be the wreck of the Edmunds Fitzgerald, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or what's, wait, what's the, what's the recent Dylan epic about the John F. Kennedy assassination? <laughs> Damn, don't ask me. I don't know my Dylan. <laughs> it's like an 18 minute song uh, about the assassination of JFK. What would you say compared to when you first started always and it was really a band and it was really happening, you had this group of songs and now, I mean, what were your goals for your band back then versus versus now when you know it's, it is your career now? Well, I mean, I do the same thing as I've done back in the day, which is like, I just want to put out this record. And that's pretty much what we do now. It's just like, let's just make more stuff and get it as good as it needs to be so it can live out in the world and we've done that inch by inch with our band like I, we're not very prolific but um I think just having that low bar has really made it a livable situation to be in because if I had expectations of you know taking over the world or you know being on the radio being on television anything like that being famous all those things that people cook up in their brains like those things are very hard to man manifest you become disappointed and sometimes those aren't goals that you actually should be striving for either and so I don't know I, I've not changed that much in that way but when we first started out we just wanted to be on any bill in Toronto like we just wanted to exist 
do you see yourself as being sort of uh, an artist for life? Good question. The albums take a lot out of me. Like I find them just the way that I treat myself when I'm making things and the way that Alec and I collaborate, like it's really taxing on both of us and the people that we work with. So as long as we can, you know, keep everything together and feel like we're doing something worthwhile and just not delude ourselves. I want to be in this band and the band to still be good. So if I'm making songs that just don't hit those little marks for me, I'd, I'd rather just be elsewhere onto something else. What would be some something else's that in the future appeal to you to devote time to? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I have to completely pivot into something unrelated. Like, um, I mean, I do love animals. I'd probably, I'd, I'd love to work, you know, with animals in some way, but um, I, I doubt it would be something I loved. <laughs> it would be something out of necessity, which is like, you know, the reality of working in arts. Right. You feel that doing artistic things is the most fulfilling thing you could do, but it's also potentially one of the most challenging. Definitely. I don't know if that's just because I'm fussy or emotional or what you call it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hard on myself and, and I really can get down on, on my ideas and, and, um, and Alec is the same. We're both just really specific about what we like and what something needs to be. And, and that's not necessarily an easy thing to be around for, you know, all the lovely people who we work with because things just go slow. And sometimes no one knows what we're going to be doing in like six months. But um, I don't know even even know what I was what I was saying there. But <laughs> what was the question? Yeah, no, you were you were answering the, you were answering the question. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you know I always feel like bands and artists should feel free to stop. You know, I think once a band or an artist becomes successful enough or up to a, a certain plateau it seems like they're not allowed to stop doing it because why would one give up that audience that you've kind of got minted? And and it's like, well, there's plenty of good reasons why you might want to do something else. You know, I, I mean, I say this not, not in a flippant way, but, you know, all the time that, you know, bands should break up more or something, you know, that it's it's only in our adulthoods is the concept that the Rolling Stones or U2, you know, things like that go on forever, like a given where we're like, we're, the breakup is the worst news in the world or something. It's just like artists or people who like want to do other stuff or where it becomes not the right thing anymore. Yeah. I mean, like Mark from Devo does like movie soundtracks. There's a lot of cool things that people pivot into. And I do. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather burn out or just like I I have this weird thing about like overstaying my welcome. I feel like I'm always stressed about how long I talk or how long I stay somewhere. Like I just have this stress about just occupying a time and space, but um I do I I have really I have no children. I don't I don't have anything to support. Like I I I feel like a lot of the times bands get into this cycle where they need to like pay for their mortgage and pay for all of these things. And so it just becomes this organism that needs to continue on. But I mean, that sounds so bleak and, and I love always and I love making music. So I think we'll be around for a while, but I don't ever want to keep going just because people are depending on us. Well, the raspberry plant. though. <laughs> <laughs> Got to prune that plant. 
Um, so tell me about kind of the the later part of this year and beyond as you potentially look toward the final itineraries for Always Tour for this album. You know, I'm guessing that into 2024, you'll do some more stuff. But what is the future, short-term future excitement about for you? Um, I mean, I think tonight we're announcing like a an Asia tour, which we're so excited to go back and and, you know, see all those places again and and play music so far away and I think we're gonna go to New Zealand which we've never been all these things that I never thought we'd be able to do but and then working on new music is you know always the thing to look forward to just making things it's again like a very fulfilling activity yeah does it feel I mean is there already new new kind of energy starting to percolate or or you just mean sort of you can see it on the horizon well it's not um there's no like momentum in that like we're trying to get something done for a certain time or a window or anything like that we've always just worked on everything all the time so we're always working up ideas and just depends on how many of those ideas we can collect (laughs) (laughs) so vague (laughs) (laughs) no I love a cryptic I love a cryptic future scape (laughs) yeah I mean this is like I mean you know there's people that we work with who are like can I just have any idea what the next year of my life is going to look like and we're all just sort of like that seems fair that's a fair request (laughs) listen no pressure here on the LSQ podcast you don't have to tell me about 13 months from now I appreciate that yeah you're welcome you're welcome I am the Colombo of podcasting. <laughs> You'll figure it out then. After you confess, we walk like friends to the car. I don't even put the cuffs on you. <laughs> yeah, cuffs suck. Molly, thank you so much for connecting. Yeah, thanks for doing this. This is fun. And thus, we have reached the end of episode 96. Always.com is their website when you want to see what they're up to. And you can find other episodes of the LSQ podcast at JennyLSQ.com. I've got one with Jason Isbell coming out in a couple of weeks. You can also find me on socials at JennyLSQ. So holler 